Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Ramadan Mubarak to you and yours. This Ramadan, as we all gather to share a meal with our loved ones, we need to remember those in Gaza who are also gathering to share a meal with so many who aren't there that were just there a year ago. Since October the 7th, the Human Development Fund has assisted over 200,000 people in Gaza, providing them with essential aid, such as food baskets, water, hot meals, winter items, shelter, hygiene kits, and baby formula. Your generous contributions are making a significant impact, especially in Rafah. Let's sustain this momentum and continue providing crucial support during this sacred and blessed month. Please visit hdfund.org slash qalam. That's hdfund.org slash qalam, Q-A-L-A-M, to learn more about our global reach this Ramadan and choose where you'd like to direct your support during this blessed month. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make this month a time of mercy, solace, acceptance, and triumph for the ummah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And may Allah continue to use all of us as a means and never replace us. Ameen, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. You're listening to the Qalam Podcast. Qalam is an organization that is dedicated to making Islamic knowledge accessible to everyone. Alhamdulillah, Qalam has been able to serve so many people all across the world in so many ways. And now, Qalam has the opportunity and the ability to take its work to the next level. Qalam now has the ability to expand its offerings to people all across the world in so many different ways. Qalam is acquiring a campus, a home, where we can continue to do the work that we do and in fact increase what we do. But we need your help, we need your support to make that dream a reality. Go to qalamcampus.com and donate generously. Every single person listening to this podcast, benefiting from Qalam, I need you to go there and donate and share that link far and wide. And let's, all of us come together, invest into our Sadaqah Jariyah and take this work to the next level. Jazakumullahu khairan. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Now enjoy the podcast. Okay, let's get started. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillahi wa kafa wa salaman ala ibadihi alladhina astafa khususan ala sayyidi rusuli wa khatamil anbiya wa ala alihi laskiya wa ashabihi latqiya amma ba'd We are studying the book of Shaykh Abdul Fattah Abu Ghudda rahimahullahu ta'ala Ar-Rasul Al-Mu'allim in which he examines and gives us an opportunity to study the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as an educator, as a teacher. Lessons, opportunity for, opportunities for us to reflect over. So we were in the middle of our reading. We'll continue. He's sharing some reflections uh, from his teacher, Sheikh Mustafa Azarqa, rahimahullah. Yes. Bismillah. While explaining this hadith, our respected teacher, Allama Mustafa Azarqa, said in his book, Al-Malkha al Displaying shortcomings in teaching and learning is considered to be a collective crime. One who commits such a crime deserves a worldly punishment. 
History has not recorded a standpoint of this nature as regards the sanctity of knowledge taken by anyone before Rasulullah or after him. Abandoning religious responsibilities is an evil act and is punishable. Teaching and learning are consecutive of these religious responsibilities. Therefore, if a learned person shrieks his responsibilities of teaching, or if a Muslim failed to learn the essentials of his religion, then both will be punished. This is because Rasulullah said, seeking knowledge is incompetent upon every Muslim. The word Muslim in this context includes both male and female because the command is conditional on a shared attribute, Islam. So here he is continuing his thoughts from the hadith that we studied in our last class where Rasulullah reprimanded a group of people who were very well educated. It was a neighborhood, a group of people, a tribe that were very good with knowledge. However, their neighbors were ignorant. So Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa held them accountable and said that how is it that you people have so much knowledge? One neighborhood, one community is so well educated. And right next to you there is another community that's neglected. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa held them accountable and gave them time and said, use this year and educate them, work on them, develop systems, give them opportunity as well. Education is that strength, it's that power that lifts people. People don't understand its value. Later on in life, some may appreciate it. But the essential education of every human being in a family, in a community, in a society, in a country, ultimately gives you the worth of those people. This is how you lift people out of poverty. This is how you create thinkers. This is how you bring change. That you ensure that they have wholesome, good, meaningful education. Education starts with a person having knowledge that they have to go and seek it. But then after that, you need to also bring in the second step, which is teach them to be thinkers. Teach them to be critical of that knowledge. Critical doesn't mean that you have to reject it. It does mean that you need to understand its roots and what it's saying and what it's trying to convey to you. Because if people don't have the ability to think and they only have knowledge, that can lead them to applying this knowledge in the wrong way. Misapplication is unfortunately a common thing. So we need to make sure that there's knowledge. Then on top of that, there's also uh, the ability to think and be critical and engage with the knowledge that you've learned. And then the third step comes in, which is application. That now we need people to also apply their knowledge. If you have people who are very good with content, but don't understand context and aren't able to understand the deeper roots to what's being taught, there is a flaw there. If you have people who are thinkers, <clears throat> yet they're not capable of bringing it into application, there is a problem there. If you have people that are applying, yet they're not able to, um, they're not able to understand the deen, and they're just applying and working based off what they think is right, and they're just practicing things, but they don't have knowledge, that's going to bring problems there as well. When we are educating our people in our communities in order to bring a society from one generation to another, from one step to another, from one page to another, we need to ensure that our education targets all aspects of our community. Starting with the children, ensuring that they have proper education. Our youth have proper education. 
making sure that our adults have proper education. Then within the adults, directing your message carefully and tactfully to the different segments of that community now. So you have people who are loosely coined as the wealth holders. These are people who have a lot of wealth and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them risk. It's important that our systems of education are available for them. That there is some mode of education that's occurring there. That there is content and there, there are ahadith and verses of the Qur'an that are helping them also grow. Because if they cease to grow in their spiritual education, that wealth doesn't circle back into this community that we're trying to develop. Then on top of that, you need to also ensure that this wealth is going to the middle class of our community. The people that are working and the people that are building the society and building the stores and building the community that we're reaching out to them. And then we also need to ensure that our knowledge is reaching the activists in our community. That you reach out to those activists and teach them as well. One of the biggest problems that we have in today's Western world is that Alhamdulillah, we have a large force that is developing uh, in terms of their desire and their eagerness to be activists and be in the front line and spread the message of Islam. Yet they lack in basic knowledge. Good intentions can only get you so far. Excitement can get you somewhere. It's needed for every movement that people need to be excited about their cause. You need to have energy. You have to be willing to sacrifice. These are all fundamental traits that need to exist for activism to be meaningful. But with all of that comes ilm. That you must have knowledge. Some basic understanding of the deen, and if it's something that you aren't capable of acquiring, then aligning yourself with people of knowledge. You'll see historically that the great Muslim rulers of the past always kept scholars close by to them, that they would consult, that they would seek advice from. Nidam al-Mulk was very close to Imam Ghazali, he had a lot of respect for him. You had the Ottomans who were known for having scholars that were always in those gatherings, that were providing feedback and providing perspective. So those that are involved in community leading don't necessarily need to be sitting in the classrooms and studying the manusha of the deen. They can continue doing what they're doing, but understand that when it comes to matters of the deen, you can't be making decisions on behalf of the ummah. Because when you stand in front of a mic and speak on television about Islam, nobody cares about what you're saying. Nobody cares about you as an individual. They assume that in that moment you are representing 1.8 billion Muslims. So you have to be careful and ensure that what you're saying is a part of mainstream Islam. We may choose to hide what we view to be mainstream Islam in fear that if other people hear of what our deen says, that they'll leave us to the curb and they won't, they won't bring us into the circle of conversation. They won't allow us to seat at the table. Well, the truth is, first and foremost, by altering the deen, First and foremost, you're not being genuine, you're not being honest. Today you may say something because of your supposed wisdom, but tomorrow when someone else, when that individual reads something else or is informed of something else, they'll feel backstabbed. So you're not doing yourself much favors there. Secondly, when you present to people that Islam is the same as Western culture and everything that Western culture teaches, Islam is you know, in line with it and it has no... Uh, objections to it and has no unique identity of its own, why would people even be interested in accepting Islam? Because what you're offering them is, is, is apparently the same as what they already have. Islam is unique. And the third thing is, 
Whatever it is that you're trying to hide from Islam, the truth is that we Muslims are proud of it because it's revelation. So we don't need anyone's sympathy here, right? Islam has a unique perspective. Islam has a bold perspective. Muslim scholars through history, through history have argued regarding the wisdoms of this perspective and the benefit not only for the individual, but for society at large. Scholars have discussed in great detail the wisdoms and true meanings behind the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The famous work of Shah Waliullah Muhaddith Dehlawi rahimahullah ta'ala from the subcontinent, his work Hujatullah al-Baligah is absolutely important to read in this regard. Because he opens up the cause and the reasons and the wisdoms behind why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has legislated what he has legislated. Allowing us to gain a deeper understanding. I was once traveling with Sheikh Hamza, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, and we were in conversation and we were just talking about different books and different scholars. And the mention of Shah Waliullah came. And his words were that I think he is one of the greatest scholars from that subcontinent region. And on top of that, he said, his work, Hujatullah al-Baligah, is irreplaceable. It's a book the likes of which I have never seen anywhere else. Such rich knowledge translated in so many languages and students across the world study it at a more higher advanced level. So we need to ensure that education is available for everyone. That it's just not for the elite few. That it's just not available for those who can afford it and those who can pay for it. And I have a lot of grievances when it comes to the unfortunate state of education in today's world. There are obvious oppressions that occur on a state and federal level. But I also believe in the Muslim community, we need to revisit what Islamic education means and what Islamic schools offer to the ummah. I am not saying that they don't have a place, they have a very important place because Islamic schools offer children to learn their secular studies, if that's the word we're going to use, even though I don't like it at all, because secular by definition means that which, that which is without God. So the idea is that science and math and social studies need to be secular, that they shouldn't have God involved in their studying. As Muslims, we believe otherwise, and that's why Islamic schools are so important, because we teach a curriculum that is embedded in understanding the sciences that we would have studied anyway that we need for our day-to-day -day life, but through a Muslim lens. So when we study science, we don't view it as the end of it all, we view it as a means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used for the world to exist. And therefore as human beings, when we understand that science now, we're able to engage with this world at a more technical and intimate level. There's benefit in this. But then on the other hand, when we look at the state of Muslim schools, and I don't speak for all of them, because mashallah, there are schools in our nation that are run by Muslim brothers and sisters that are very sincere, and they've done a phenomenal job at taking this uh, education and offering it to the community. But nonetheless, there is still a large segment of our groups, of, of, of our schools, that aren't catered for the common people. These are multi-million dollar projects in which people are pouring money in. Alhamdulillah, that's great. The tuition at these schools is you know, way above the affordability of what we may call the working class or average people. Some schools, if you're lucky, they'll have a, um, some sort of a scholarship program for 10% student body, for 20% student body. And then at the end of it all, I really wonder that what part of that education is 
focused on creating contributors back to the community that funded that organization in the first place. I'm very much interested in knowing if someone is willing to conduct a research on this. That through the Islamic schools that we have in our country, hundreds and thousands of students that graduate from these programs, that Alhamdulillah these schools were facilitated by the community and their funds, what number of those people actually come back to contribute those very same communities? Or do they move on? And if they do move on, what value is a community getting out of this? There's a lot to discuss here when it comes to education. There's a lot to be discussed about the business model of education. We need to choose whether our schools are going to be non-for-profit institutions that are truly going to run on donations and everyone is welcome, understanding that there will be a compromise in that model inherently, or we decide to go full out private and, you know, don't do any fundraising and treat it as a business like many private schools exist around us. Find investors and give them money back on their investment and have top-tier education. This middle ground, this middle system is a very confusing situation that we have, unfortunately. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide us and open up our hearts. And I must say, because if I don't say this, I would be wrong. Alhamdulillah, there are sincere people working towards a, a solution to this, uh, to this cause every day. And we are thankful to those individuals and we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevate them in this dunya and raise their maqam in the akhirah. I also don't want to paint every Islamic school like this either. I bring this before you today because among you are educators. Among you are those that are involved in the system. We need to have these hard conversations and ask ourselves, where did our Islamic school start and where are they headed? Have we made any advancement in terms of our our management? Are we made any advancement in terms of our business plan, our business structure? Are we going somewhere or are we basically in the same circle roaming around trying to find solutions for problems that have existed for decades? Education. I was talking about how we need to ensure that education is offered to every segment of our society. In our last class, we touched on this issue briefly. But today the author brings this up again. He says, he cites the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Talabul ilmi faridatun ala kulli muslim. That seeking knowledge is obligatory upon every muslim. Then he says, وَلَفْضُ الْمُسْلِمُ هُنَا يَشْمَلُ الرَّجُلَ وَالْمَرْأَةِ That this word muslim in the hadith used is inclusive of both men and women. Because the common factor the common factor between men and women is Islam, and Islam is and, and knowledge is obligatory upon Muslims. So these opportunities of seeking knowledge need to be available for both men and women in our community. Now, there is no doubt that throughout history, women have played a very important and integral role in the dissemination of knowledge, right from the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is why Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam gave men and women equal opportunity in his gatherings, that if men were there, women were there. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had a space for women to attend and seek knowledge. And therefore we see that when Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam left the ummah and he left this world, it wasn't only the male figures who came forward and took the reins of the ummah to educate people, the women came forward too. And they contributed equally. Imam Hakim, the author of the Mustadrak, he writes 
that one-fourth of the riwayat, the narrations we have from Rasulullah are narrated by women. There are masail that we, there are rulings and issues in Islam that we would not know did we, had we not received these narrations from the female companions. A great, a great example of this is the famous position that the jurists hold that before uh, the four rakah of fard, of dhuhr salat, there's four rakah sunnah. Right? And the reason why they give preference to those four rakah as, as opposed to the narration that supposes that narrates that it's two rakat before dhuhr is because they say those, narrate, those four rakats were narrated by the wives of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam and they saw him pray sunnah at home. So in this area, they give preference to the, um, to the narrations of the women because they are counterparts of men when it comes to seeking and conveying knowledge. We see that by empowering both segments of our society, we increase the level of education right from childhood. That when you have a mother and father who are both educated, who both know Islam, they don't need to wait to outsource the responsibility of education to a school or to someone else. And I'm not just talking about Islamic education, I'm talking about education in a very broad lens. In a very broad stroke here. When you have a parent who you look up to and understand that this parent of mine is competent in these subjects that I study at school, there's a level of respect that comes. But on the other hand, when you're struggling with a basic um, division equation and the people in your home aren't able to answer it, yet everyone else can, there's a little bit of a disappointment there. That I really wish the people around me could help me in this moment. Similarly, when it comes to learning the Qur'an, and I've held this position um, for a long time, that I think the earliest level of studying Qur'an, which is ta'riful huruf, right? Learning alif bata, learning how to ittisarul huruf, abada, right? I'rabul huruf, putting fatha dhamma kasra on there and connecting letters. You know how the first level of studying that kids have in our Desi culture, they call it the qaida. Qaida Nurani is a very famous one, right? They also have the, what's the other one called? Um, the one that's taught everywhere. Is it called Tajweed Made Easy? No, no. Yes, Sarna Al Quran, that's what it's called. Quran Made Easy, right? That was a more famous one that when we were studying, one of our teachers, Sheikh Mikail's wife, Ustada Sara, recently published a, a, a copy, her own version of the Qaida with uh, notes. And I like what she did because. At the beginning of every lesson in the book, there is a QR code there. So as a parent, if you don't know how to teach that, all you do is pull out your phone, use your camera, scan the QR code, and she has a lesson on that subject on YouTube loaded, uploaded already. So corresponding lessons already exist. And that's such a beautiful way to use technology. We use QR codes for all sorts of garbage. And it's beautiful to see someone using QR codes for teaching Qur'an and teaching um, this early level of uh, education. My own son Mahmoud um, used this, Quran, this Qaida that she published and my wife found it to be very beneficial too. May Allah grant barakah on her work and all the people that have published and authored in this regard. The point that I was making is that I'm not sure if this is a level of education that needs to be outsourced. This is something that we as parents should take the responsibility of doing ourselves. The parent may say, I don't have time. Well, that's not good. 
That's not a good sign to say that I don't have time to teach my own child. They may say that I don't have expertise to do it. I can't read properly, I can't pronounce myself. Well, this is a good time to go and learn. If your child is going to know it, you should know it too. And to be very honest, learning the Arabic alphabet and learning the voweling system and understanding how to connect letters and words for an adult who has any base level of education, the whole process shouldn't take more than maybe two, three weeks. I'll be honest with you, it shouldn't take much. One month maximum. Now you might struggle when it comes to pronunciation and perfecting your pronunciation. That's an ongoing journey, right? And that's something that you grow in. If you teach your children the basics of how to read the Qur'an, when they grow up and they read Qur'an for the rest of their lives, you are the first person to benefit from it. Not only the honor, but I speak of the reward as well. That when a person is lying in their grave and their child continues to read, here you're offloading all that reward to someone else. Why not cash in yourself? That Islamic education and education in general starts at home, that people join together and they teach together. Unfortunately, many of our societies, and I speak societies of the world, have become somewhat reluctant when it comes to educating the women of the community. For some, it's a cultural issue, while others feel that if women become too educated, then men will feel insecure to marry them. Really weird, really weird issue, but it is one nonetheless. Some feel that education will cause people to no longer take their primary religious and family responsibilities seriously. If that's the case, then we can address that issue separately. It doesn't mean that we need to bar people from education. Who are we to bar anyone from seeking knowledge? You can remind people. Look, you got to go to college, but you got to iron your own clothes. I'm not ironing them. I'll help you get through college, but you're going to have to cook your own meals. Life is full of responsibilities, and you can't hide in one to ignore the other. You have to learn to multitask and keep things going. And if your primary responsibilities, your religion and your family are being neglected, male or female, like I mentioned a few moments ago, you got to cut back. You don't have time to teach your own children Qur'an, you have to cut back. And I'm going to share an example of this, a few examples, shortly. So we take a quick look in history of how females took part in the system of education, seeking and providing, right from the time of Rasulullah The famous Sahabiyya Hind al-Ansariya She says that I learned Surah Qaf just by hearing it being recited by Rasulullah that opportunity was available for her. You don't memorize something by hearing it once, you go again and again. She didn't hear it through an intermediary, she heard it directly from Rasulullah Similarly, the famous tabi'i, tabi'un are the generation that follow the Sahaba. Among them, Sayyidu tabi'in, Sa'id ibn Musayyib, rahimahullahu ta'ala one of the greatest tabi'un of his generation. He taught his daughters hadith. He was a great scholar of hadith, and he ensured that his daughters were very, were very well versed in hadith too. One of the khalifas of the time, Abdul Malik bin Marwan, requested his daughter's hand for the marriage of his son Walid, who later on became khalifa. Both of his sons, Walid and Suleiman bin Abdul Malik, they both became khalifa. It was during their khilafa that uh, Sindh, uh, the northern region of the region of the subcontinent came under Muslim control, and it was also during their khilafah that 
Um, the um, Andalus was conquered by Muslims. The Iberian Peninsula, it was also conquered by the Muslims. It was under their control. He requested Sayyid ibn Musayyib's daughter to marry his son Walid. Sayyid refused. He didn't want his daughter being married in some big political family. So he had his daughter marry one of his impoverished students. Poor guy. But he was a sincere person, hardworking person. The husband says regarding her that she was amongst the most beautiful people and the most knowledgeable of the Qur'an and Sunnah and most aware of the rights of the husband. Knowledge doesn't necessarily take a person away from family rights. If your knowledge is proper, you balance yourself. Right? You make sure that all of your rights are being fulfilled. Abu Na'im narrates that one morning her husband took his cloak and was ready to leave the house. She asked him, where are you going? So he said, to the gathering of your father for knowledge. So she said to him, sit here, I will teach you the knowledge of Sa'id. <laughs> he narrates this in his Hayyatul Awliya. Similarly, Imam Malik rahmatullahi alayhi, it is very well known that his, daughter, his daughters had studied hadith from him. And they had memorized the Mu'atta, the famous collection of Imam Malik rahmatullahi alayhi. When Imam Malik would teach hadith to his students, his daughters would sit on the other side of the door and they would listen carefully, and if anyone made a mistake, they would knock on the door while reading. If a person made a mistake while reading, they would knock on the door to make their corrections. That, oh, you made a mistake there. They had the book memorized. They had hadith at their fingertips. Imam Malik rahmatullahi alayhi had a son whose name was Muhammad. He wasn't so drawn to studying and scholarship. One day, Imam Malik's son was passing by in some scruffy garments. Imam Malik was very proper, the way he dressed and the way he spoke and the, spoke and the way he carried himself. So his son was unkept. He was passing by. So to that, Imam Malik said, good manners are in the hands of Allah. This is my son and those are my daughters. That they took the trophy in this one. Proud. He was proud of his, his children. That they worked hard, they sacrificed, and they continued the legacy of their father. Similarly, it is said regarding Shaykh al-Islam Abu Abbas Ahmad ibn Abdullah al-Fasi rahimahullah ta'ala that he taught all of his ilm to his own daughters. He sat there and he made them masters of hadith. He taught them Quranic recitations. He taught them Bukhari. He taught them Muslim. However, later in life he spent less time with them. Someone asked that why was it that he ended up spending so little time with his daughters if he spent so much time educating them, had so much love? So he said that um, it was because he would spend all day teaching and when he would come home, his daughters would be asleep. And this happened for a period until his daughter got married and then moved on to her own home. Imam Dhahabi, while commenting on this statement, he says, that there is no praise in this practice. Because the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ is the direct opposite of this. The master of mankind ﷺ used to carry his granddaughter Umama when he prayed in salah. You can check Seer Alam al-Nubala of Imam Shamsuddin al-Dhahabi for his comments on this incident. Talking, I was talking about balancing, that you balance things. 
balance doesn't only imbalancing doesn't imbalance doesn't only occur on the part of women; it also occurs on the parts of men. We've seen this, and I've seen this frequently in my life, that some of the greatest scholars that I met in my life, unfortunately, their own children were the furthest from the deen. Now, this isn't to put all blame on them because at the end of the day, every person is responsible for their own choices. So I'm not speaking of those parents who put an effort and tried. Nuh alayhi salam's son died out of Islam. No one in the world would dare blame Nuh alayhi salam, otherwise we'd kick that person hard, right? How dare you make a claim like this? Parents shouldn't always carry the blame for what their children do. You can do your best, then it's their responsibility to walk the walk of life. But then there is a second aspect of this which involves direct negligence. That you spend all day traveling and giving da'wah to the world and you're teaching everyone, but your own children are left far away. For this in Urdu we have a famous saying. They say, That if you place a candle in a dark room, it brightens up the whole room. The only area of the room that remains dark is the area right underneath the candle. Chirag tale andera. Chirag is the lantern. Tale means under. Andera. It's under the lantern where the darkness lies. Those that are closest to you at times are the ones that are neglected because you have this savior mentality that I have to go save the world without realizing that it starts at home. Otherwise, your own children will resent you for being absent. The community won't respect you for seeing the hypocrisy that you talk about a prophetic model when in reality you neglect the people around you. But at the same time, to complete this conversation, there is a third wing to this. And that is that a person only commits to their family and doesn't fulfill their own religious responsibilities. So you have one people, one group of people that are fully committed to their teaching and education and they're neglecting their family. And on the other hand, you have another group of people that are only spending day and night with their family and and neglect uh, their religious responsibilities, what we're advocating for is a middle ground. What we're advocating for here is a middle ground. Knowing how to prioritize your family and your religious responsibilities, your communal responsibilities, requires wisdom and, under and it requires a an understanding of your priorities. That there are some things that are fard and obligatory on the individual. You need to make sure those are done. And then there are moments that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for certain individuals has given them a skill set that not everyone in society has. It's a unique thing that they have. So at that point we turn to their families and we tell them that we're here to help you be a little patient because this person is benefiting a lot of people. But at the same time that individual should not fully neglect their family. See, you see what I'm talking about? You see what I'm saying here? There's a balancing act that needs to occur. Imam Alauddin al-Samarqandi, the author of he had a daughter who was also very knowledgeable and was known for her beauty. She was sought for marriage by many wealthy people and the princes of their times. He turned them all down. One of his students wrote a commentary on his Tuhfatul Fuqaha. She chose to marry him. His book was Badayu al-Sana'a, the famous Hanafi book. Hanafi book. Uh, and this uh, husband of hers later on became known as one of the greatest scholars in Islamic history, Imam Qasani rahmatullahi alayhi. Similarly, we go back to the time of the Sahaba now again. Um Salam, this is a Sahih Muslim narration. 
that Umm Salma radiallahu anha was one day at home and there was a lady combing her hair. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Ayyuhan nas, O people. So she got up right away and went to the, the, the border of her house because it was close to the masjid so she can hear. She went right to the door, wall. So the mashata, the lady that was combing her hair said, where are you going? He said, O people. So she said, Alasna minan nas, are we not people? If Nabi wasallam said people, that means everyone needs to listen to what he's saying because he's inviting everyone. And then she narrates the riwayah of the hawth that Rasulullah says that I will be at my pond on the Day of Judgment and I will be looking for my people and calling them. But then the malaika will come and they will push a group of people away from me and they will say, not these people. The Prophet will say, why? And then the malaika will say, because these people altered the deen after you left. They ahdathu ba'dak. They changed the deen. They innovated in the deen. So these people have no place. And Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam will say, Buhdan, buhdan, suhqan, suhqan. Take these people away. Bring, don't bring them near me. Umm Salma radiallahu anha narrates this hadith. And the first part of that narration I shared with you demonstrates her eagerness to seek knowledge. How keen she was to study from Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Imam Shawkani rahmatullahi alayhi says that there is no proof documented to show that a hadith was ever rejected by a scholar simply because the narrator was a woman. That this was a grounds of narrating that we won't accept knowledge because the one narrating it is a female. We see that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he led Eid al-Fitr. And on his way out, he went to the segment, the part of the, the prayer area where the women were, and he sat there and spoke to them specifically. In one narration, Bilal an was with him. And Nabi wasallam educated them personally, privately. Similarly, and in another narration that a female companion came to Rasulullah wasallam, and she said, O Messenger of Allah, the men have taken hadith from you, they've taken the knowledge. What about us? We would like for you to allocate a time in which you come and teach us. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam agreed. So the women would gather together in one of the homes and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would go there. And this was a regular practice of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That he would teach women and he would educate them as well. It became such a practice that women historically were so inclined to knowledge that as a part of their dowry, it was implied that a book of knowledge would be given. When seeing a, a, a bride off at the time of wedding, they would give some sort of a book of knowledge. Imam Dhahabi rahmatullahi alayhi, in his Seer Alam al-Nubala, he writes that the brides were usually given the mukhtasar of Imam al-Muzani at the time of their weddings. That was a common gift that fathers would give their daughters, the mukhtasar of Imam Muzani. And then they would take this knowledge and bring it home and it would be a cherished um, possession of theirs. That this was knowledge given to them. Now, again, historically, education for both men and women, boys and girls, started at a young age from their homes. They would learn from their own parents. They would learn from their siblings. They would learn from their uncles. They would learn from their aunts. This required that the parents had some knowledge as well. 
if they had knowledge, they can now impart their, this knowledge to the younger ones. So we have examples of this. Fatima bintul Mundir. She studied with her grandmother, Asma bint Abi Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anha. That's where her journey of education started. Similarly, we have um, Asma radiallahu anha's sons who studied with their aunt, Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha. Urwa bin Zubair radiallahu anha narrates from Aisha radiallahu anha frequently. Abdullah bin Zubair radiallahu anha had great regard for his aunt as well. He benefited from her tremendously. Right? So these female figures played a pivotal role in the education of the people within their homes. Similarly, after seeking knowledge from their family members, it then was also common for those who wanted to continue seeking their Islamic knowledge specifically to turn to local renowned scholars. Who were the scholars available in their community? Who was there for them to seek knowledge from? So, another known example in the circles of hadith is that of Umm Muhammad Khadija. That she would attend the gatherings of Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal, rahimahullah ta'ala. She studied hadith from him. And she narrated many ahadith. Among her students was the son of Imam Ahmad, Abdullah. Abdullah bin Ahmad, he was among the, her students. And he would describe her by saying, she used to come to my father and hear hadith from him, and how he used to narrate hadith to her. So he used to describe it, that how you know, she used to come and hear hadith from my father, and my father would keenly uh, teach hadith to her as well. She was a close student of his. Similarly, we find that it was common practice that just as women would study from men, men would study from women as well. Those very same women would then go on to be teachers for both men and women. The example of Aisha radiallahu anha is known. That among her students were prominent tabi'un. There were those that were from her family, and then there were also those that were not from her family. However, Aisha radiallahu anha was very particular. So she would have a curtain drawn, and on the other side, the men would sit and on one side she would sit, and she would teach them. They would be in those gatherings, and they would seek from her. Students would gather around the house of female scholars. And many a times, those female scholars would teach from inside their homes. When you're thinking of homes, don't think of what we have today. Those houses were... Kachagar. Uh, you guys understand? You know, more simple homes that barely would have windows, and those doors would open and close, you can hear things in and out. So the women would sit inside their home and the male students would gather outside while the female students would be allowed to sit inside in the gathering of the teacher. An example of this is Zainab bintul Kamal, who narrates hadith from a large group of teachers. One of her students, the famous Dhabi, he describes her gatherings of knowledge. And he says that she was a soft-spoken, patient, and polite-mannered individual. And when she would teach, students would gather around her house. And she would teach them through the most part of the day. To further this point, that men also studied from women, when we study in history, we find many examples of this. 
Imam Zuhri تعالى, has narrated hadith from a number of women. And Shih- Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri is a very well-known figure in hadith circles. And even beyond that, because of his great contributions in compiling hadith and playing that early pivotal role, played an early role in the compilation of hadith. Khatib Baghdadi narrates the whole Sahih al-Bukhari from Karima al-Marwaziyah. The whole Sahih al-Bukhari, not just a few narrations. Ibn Asakir narrated hadith from over 80 women. And we can continue this, of examples of this. They played a role that was appropriate and suitable and desirable for them. We can talk about women and female poets, right? Um, whether it was the daughter of Hussein an, who was known for her poetry and was uh, quite a um, prominent figure in Medina Munawwara. She was present in Karbala when her father was killed. And that traumatized her a lot. She spent a good part of her life being very sad about it. But she was a very um, um, prominent figure, say that, in Medina Munawwara. Young girls in Medina used to look up to her. They would try to dress like her because she had a very elegant way of dressing. Some reports even tell us that later on, she was married to one of the greatest poets of her time. She was very eloquent herself, very knowledgeable. And I can continue like this, um, but I'm not sure if there's a need for this anymore because we've thoroughly established this. I've seen this with my own eyes. When we studied in Madrasa, one of my teachers, Mufti Shabir, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevate him and prolong his life and allow us to continue to benefit from him. I had the honor of studying many books with him. Among them were the Jami' of Imam Tirmidhi and also the Sahih of Imam Bukhari. When he would teach us in class, specifically on the weekends, his young daughters would be sitting next to him and he would be listening to Quran. He would teach us class and then come to the masjid and sit with his kids for a little bit and they would read their sabakh to him and read their muraja with them and then he would go back to class and teach and come back and listen to them. We saw this growing up. We saw this, that how he played a, a role um, he sent his daughters off to study knowledge, right? At, um, under prominent scholars. His wife was the teacher of hadith on the, in a female's madrasa, in a sister's madrasa. So she, she used to teach Bukhari there, he used to teach Bukhari here. Amazing man he was. He once said to us that when I was getting married, I said to my father, he was young at the time, now he's very old, white beard. So he said, when I was young I, and it came time for me to get married, my father asked me, what is it that you're looking for in your bride-to-be? So he said, Abba, I only have one request, that my wife is a hafidah of the Qur'an. So his parents went on a search and they found a suitable spouse for him. But she wasn't hafidah. He married her, and then one of the first things that he did was he worked with his wife on memorizing the Qur'an. And his wife became hafidah under his own guidance. I, if I'm, I would probably be correct if I said that 
all of his children memorize, if not all, but a great portion of the Qur'an with their father. Right? He played that role with them. And they are um, scholars in their own regard. These are people who led by example. That you give education to everyone in the community. Now, one thing I must say here, because if I don't, then I would be... Um, I, would, I wouldn't be thorough in this discussion. And that is understanding that each person, when it came to their journey of education, male or female, specifically when it comes to studying from the opposite gender, has a different level of comfort. There are some gatherings where the teacher won't feel comfortable with the sister sitting in front of them. That's their right. That's a scholar and we should respect that, that this person feels more comfortable in a gathering where, some, where the women are in a whole different building. That works. Many of my teachers would teach hadith to female students and they wouldn't sit in the same room. The women would be in one room, they would be in another room, and next door maybe, but they would teach. That's how they preferred it. I've also seen some of my teachers teach in gatherings where women were on one side and men were on another side. I've, seen, I've been in gatherings where women are behind a divider. These are all possibilities, right? And there is, a, there is a, a legitimate discussion of what is most appropriate for the gathering based off of your culture, your society, uh, the age group of people you're, that you're educating. And there, there are these factors that can, and if I may argue, should be taken into consideration. My point isn't right now to argue that. So I don't want that to be the takeaway point. The point that I'm trying to draw here is what Shaykh Abdul Fattah Abu Ghudda rahimahullah ta'ala brings here that talabul ilmi faridatun ala kulli muslim that seeking knowledge is obligatory upon every muslim and this obligation is not limited only to the men rather it extends to the women of our community as well because both of them are combined by one amazing unique factor and that is Islam that where Islam goes, education will follow. An ummah who prides themselves over the first revelation being iqra' has no right to deprive its people of education. Neither should we, should, neither should we be interested in doing such a thing. Yes? I would like to add to what he said regarding the hadith, seeking knowledge is incumbent on every Muslim when Rasulullah made the obligation of seeking knowledge obligatory on all Muslims, he was simultaneously stating that there is no room for ignorance in the Sharia of Islam for one who claims to be Muslim. The first words that were revealed in the Book of Allah Ta'ala were read in the name of your sustainer who created, created man from a clot. Read, and your sustainer is most kind who taught by the pen, taught man that which he did not know. If I were to tell you how many times I have spoken to younger girls who have said to me that, Sheikh, I wish there was a female role model that I can look up to, a scholarly individual. I, I mean, I would be, it's too many times. I grew up, I'm telling you, looking up to imams who were serving in America, uh, you know, for me, Imam Siraj Wahad was a big deal. You know, these days, young people don't know who Imam Siraj is. But growing up in the 90s, Imam Siraj was the person that you listened to. 
He was the one whose lectures shook your heart and he continues to do that. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant him health and preserve him and grant him a long life and continue to accept him for the khidmah of the deen. But when we look at the young girls who are growing up today, it's unfortunate that we don't have enough role models for them. I am not dismissing the female scholars in our community that are serving day and night. May Allah continue to accept them and allow them to be a source of inspiration for the young girls across the world and, you know, and the boys in the community, that they are inspired by seeking, by seeing them, and they're touched by it. We need more of this. We need a lot more. We need a lot of role models. I'm not just talking about people that are speaking at a national convention. I'm talking about people who are day in, day out in our communities, who go to the dinners where the families get together on the weekend, who are present at the weddings, and who are there to be a source for people to gain knowledge while they're in Mecca and Medina. That these sources are available. These people are available. There are so many issues that people don't feel comfortable asking about. Right? There are issues related to women that women may feel uncomfortable being too graphic when it comes to asking that question to someone from the opposite gender. We, this is something that, you know, that shouldn't happen. This shouldn't exist. This issue shouldn't exist. There should be people in all aspects of our society that are experts that are available to help every member of our society, every member of our ummah, that there are people there to help them. And whatever capacity, whatever your comfort zone is, again, this is not an issue about me trying to push that, you know, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, there should be no boundaries between gender interaction. That's not what I'm speaking of here. I'm talking about just the issue of education. People have to be comfortable and know that you can seek knowledge from other people. You can gain from them. One of my students once said to me, female student, that I once went to a gathering to speak. And, you know, the men, their comment was that, what is she going to know? How is she going to know anything? How is she going to have any understanding of the deen? Can you please get some guy here who actually knows what he's talking about? This is the sort of mentality that we have. That people almost are convinced that ilm cannot exist in the female genetics. Like there can't be knowledge there. This all has to change. One measure that I took for my own children, my boys specifically, that before they reached the age of puberty, I ensured that most, if not all, of their teachers were female. Because I understand once to reach the age of puberty, now the rulings change. There are, there are more sensitivities in place here. But as they were young, having those female teachers a part of their life, one day if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts them for the khidmah of this deen, they will remember that our foundations were laid by women in our community. Respect them. These were the people who built you. That debt can never be forgotten. This was strategic. It wasn't passive. I intentionally did this with the hope that that respect will always be there. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us tawfiq. This was, uh, you know, only a few lines that we read today from the book. But the issue that he... Um, brought forth today is an important one. So we spent time discussing it. My dua is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts us all for seeking this knowledge. 
allows us to be sincere in seeking it, and then allows us to be vessels of knowledge for the rest of humanity, and that we are inspired by them. This thought, if it ever crosses your mind, that how can someone, you know, who isn't what I expect to be a person of knowledge, deliver knowledge to me, if that thought ever crosses your mind, something's wrong with you. How can a black person have knowledge? Can we please get an Arab here? How can a Desi person have knowledge? Can we please get someone from, you know, from Indonesia, Malaysia here? How can this Malaysian, Turkish person have knowledge? Can we please get an Indian here? If it's not Indian, there's no knowledge. This, this garbage that's cooking in our mind. How can this convert have knowledge? What is this convert going to know? I have friends who are scholars that accepted Islam years ago, and they tell me that when they go to gatherings, you know, people, they say, ah, oh, here comes a convert. He's probably going to have horrible tajweed, and he's going to read things messed up, and he's going to promote some watered-down, wishy-washy, half-broken, badly researched version of Islam. Well, news alert, the Sahaba were converts. <laughs> like, I don't know what to say. These are your insecurities that you're projecting so much. A lot of projecting, a lot of insecurities. Open your mind. Go to different gatherings. Sit with people of ilm. And inshallah, you will be inspired. And I speak to everyone here. And it's that appreciation that will allow us as a community to walk forward. And together raise the bar of ilm, ta'lim, education in our community. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh.